0: You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media.
1: HBO Documentary Films presents Mommy Dead and Dearest, a true crime story in the age of social media where child abuse, mental illness, and forbidden love converge. This mystery tells the story of Dee Dee Blanchard and her wheelchair-bound daughter Gypsy Rose, a mother and daughter who were beloved members of their community and thought to be living a fairy tale life. But as it turns out, it was actually a living nightmare. Get a first-hand look at this bizarre case and one of psychology's most controversial conditions, Munchausen by Proxy Syndrome, in Mommy, Dead and Dearest, premiering Monday, May 15th at 10 p.m. on HBO.
2: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and this week, the slightly too close to reality show called The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. Plus, we'll talk about a bunch of other stuff, and we're going to do that with my true crime co-author and real-life husband and my favorite host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. You
1: did that great without a script, Rebecca.
2: Hey, it's better than copying and pasting.
1: I you forgot everybody should know. Rebecca forgot to write a script, so she just said, I'm gonna wing it. It's and true. I said, This is gonna be a disaster. But you got through it, okay.
2: I did. I am the Bill O'Reilly of this podcast.
1: Let's see if you can remember everybody else on the panel.
2: <laughs> and also joining us is uh,
1: Yeah, you forgot.
3: Nope, no, no, no. You gotta say the name <laughs> right. The Glunbeck of our panel.
2: Nope. And also joining us is true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed PI, certified cat lady, and all around
4: awesome chick, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Thank you. I like that <laughs> I'm an awesome chick this week. I feel like I've like moved up in the world. You have. You definitely have. And also with
2: us is our favorite, super talented noir novelist, always happy naysayer, and co-host of the Radio Free Dystopia podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby.
3: How's it going? I
2: don't know. It's going pretty well. How you doing?
3: How are you doing? I'm doing okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I just want to fill our audience in. we getting a lot of tweets about programming notes. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah. I don't know if we need like a sound effect for this. Do you want to just say like programming okay. notes, Kevin?
1: Programming <laughs> notes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. So this week we're talking about Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. the drama, the adaptation of the Margaret Atwood. It's Handmaid's the Handmaid's Tale. Tale. Oh,
1: okay. Like she's the only one. Yes. Alright, got
2: it. That's a Hulu show that we had to subscribe to Hulu to Get and that we're watching. It's obviously an adaptation of the Margaret Atwood novel and has a lot of resonance with what's going on in the world, according to some people. Next week we're gonna be talking about the HBO special Mommy Dead and Dearest. Mm-hmm. Unrelated to the ad, you may or may not have heard of being beginning of this podcast. <laughs> we actually planned this before. And then the following week, we are planning to discuss the Netflix series, The Keepers. It's a limited edition series based on a really interesting crime in the Baltimore region. Correct, Kevin? Yeah. So that's the plan. It might change, but that's the plan for now.
1: And that's programming notes.
2: (laughs) Now, one of the things that I wanted to talk about before we get started tonight is we get a lot of people writing to us, asking us if what we're listening to, if we're going to be talking about certain things. Uh-huh. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about whether or not any of us have any podcast recommendations, things that we may or may not end up talking about on this show or that we're just listening to or looking forward to listening to. So what about you, Kevin? What have you been listening to lately?
1: Well, I have been listening to the end of season one of Crime Town.
2: You've been talking about that a lot.
1: Yeah. And I think, okay, I'll give you the downside and then the upside. The downside is there are a lot of episodes of Crime Town. I mean, I think it. I think the last one was episode eighteen. Mm-hmm. You no, know, for what it it was, it was a very long podcast. The upside though is that Every episode was really, really good. This is the one podcast, I think, that could be bound together in a book and would be really interesting. You know, there were some of the episodes were a little, you know, a, a bit of a sidetrack when you're talking about the mob doctor, the woman who fell in love with a mobster, and she was uh, Raymond Patriarca's private uh, physician, the judge uh, who was caught up in the corruption investigation in Rhode Island. But then, you know, sort of the last three episodes focus on where we started with Mayor Buddy Cianci and how he was taken down in an FBI sting called Operation Plunderdome. <laughs> and really fascinating. And there's so, I mean, everything that you'd want in producing a podcast is they've got so much great archival tape. You don't hear sort of any contemporary tape until the last episode. And I think they were starting trying to tape an interview with Buddy Sancy, 2015 when he was still alive. Mm-hmm. So they've been working on it for this long. I don't know how, what they're going to do for season two or how they're going to match it, but I think this was an excellent podcast. And if you listen to the first 10 episodes or whatever, and then they went on break and then you didn't pick it up again. Doesn't I, happen
2: to me. Yeah.
1: I say, go back, but if you don't feel like you have the bandwidth to do the whole thing, just listen to the last three episodes, close the loop on that narrative, and I think that you'll find that, yeah, this was one of the top five podcasts of of the year, m- maybe the top two.
2: Wow, that is a bold statement. Yep. Now, Kevin, if I were to say in post-production, drop in a clip from one of those final three episodes, what would you suggest that I... Uh Drop in here right now for our listeners to listen to.
1: one one of the best things was hearing like all the investigative tape that they had when they they had the guy wear the wire and go in and set up disappointment
0: regarding my situation over there. Frank was very cautious. He was talking to me and touching me to see if I had the wire. I was
1: a little better for the school department. I don't know what happened, but they went right over me
4: and they went right up
1: in the video Frank brushes Tony off saying there's nothing he can do to help they the decision when so Tony goes back to Uncle Joe and he complains that Frank blew him off
2: all right so the last three episodes of Crime Town that's your pitch or the whole thing if someone has more time that's your pitch yeah. All right. So, uh, Laura, what have you been listening to or are you looking forward to listening to that you want to, like, make a little plug for right now for the show?
4: Well, I have you and Toby to thank for this. So, my husband and I chaperoned a field trip the other day, but we drove on our own. And I was like, hey, we should listen to this podcast. My dad wrote a porno. (laughs) Oh, God. so we're the like, greatest
5: podcast in the history
4: of the world. It's so funny. So we're driving along and I'm like, is this really awful that we're listening to this podcast nope. on the way to chaperone an elementary field trip? I'm like, are we going to hell right now? No, not on the um, way.
1: While you're there, yes.
4: <laughs> so anyway, for those who don't know, um, the main narrator, Jamie Morton, um, his father writes travel guides and also branched out into porno. With and he has he's two friends with him, James Cooper and Alice Levine and it's just, I'm like laughing along like I feel like I'm just hanging out with these people and I'm starting to feel like I'm actually part of the conversation because they're thinking things and saying things that I would say as well as they're dissecting this book basically line by line
3: <laughs> So should we read the,
0: um, the blurb?
2: Oh my goodness we haven't even got to the blurb, I brilliant. I
0: seriously Belinda Blumenthal
2: Can <laughs> we <laughs> <me> stop there <laughs>
0: That is the least sexy name I've ever heard in Alliteration, my life. Again, I think I'm sensing
3: a
1: theme. Belinda Blumenthal gets exciting <laughs> solicited sex regularly. So regularly, in fact, she makes big bonuses from it. Based in London,
5: UK, Belinda works for Steels Pots and Pans as their worldwide sales Rewind.
0: Rewind. What
5: pots P- and pans? Pots and pans. It, again, it is the sexiest of
4: industry. <laughs> yes, it's a little graphic, it's but it extremely was extremely graphic and the
2: funniest you know. fucking thing you'll ever listen to.
4: Yes, so it was very entertaining, and um, it definitely helped with our our drive the other day.
2: <laughs> now, Toby, did Laura steal your thunder just now? Were you also going to talk about my dad wrote a porno? Because I feel like I heard a giant sigh on your end just then.
3: I, I was, and now I'm desperately trying to open iTunes and see what
4: i <laughs> Well, Toby, you've gotten farther along, so maybe you can give us some high plot points. Well, I'll just say one thing
2: about my dad wrote a porno. First of all, full disclosure, it accidentally came on when my very mature teenage son was in the car, and I was just like, oh, God, you already heard a dirty part. You may as well just keep listening. It is so funny that it actually kind of overcomes the extreme filth. Of the text that they're reading. I mean, this is not news to a lot of people who've already listened to this podcast. It's been popular for like what, like a year or whatever. But this is the perfect people doing the perfect thing. It's a great example of it's that.
1: Not, it's, it's not that the erotic stuff is filth.
2: Oh, it's filth. It's that it's it is so filth.
1: badly done. It's so bad.
2: But it's also It's filth- so
3: awkward. Well, they, they keep saying that- uh,
2: Rocky Flintstone?
3: Well, Rocky, yeah, Rocky Flintstones. But they keep saying, like, during erotic moments, like, he grabbed her cervix. <laughs> and It's just, it's, at one point, the guy says, the guy whose father did it says something like, after reading this, if it weren't for my existence, I wouldn't think my father had ever had sex before.
2: <laughs> it's true. It's true. and, and- it,
3: It's really, it's, it's hilarious. The book itself fails on every level. And they do a great job commentating on it. Like Um, I don't laugh out loud a whole lot just like driving around listening to podcasts. But with this, it's like almost nonstop. And then you like pull up with your windows
1: open, like into a
3: (laughs) parking lot or something. (laughs) And you realize what's coming out of your car. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Yeah, you're so you anyway. to be in the drop-off lane at uh, the elementary school. Have though? you guys That's, listened yeah. to any of
2: the uh, celebrity interview episodes with amazing celebrities like Michael Sheen and Daisy Ridley and Toby Maguire who've come to the living room to talk with them about the previous episodes of my dad wrote a porn, like this is like, when I say this has been a thing for a while, I'm sure many of our listeners have been like, like listening for a while. I listened a long time ago and I was trying to get people to listen, but I feel like I wasn't explaining it quite right. Mm-hmm. It is an extraordinary project that these guys put together. And largely because they have the rights to actually read this book on audio because it's his dad who self published it <laughs> and yeah. wrote it. Right. Yeah. Like, we could never do that with a
4: book. Like, no one else can ever do well, this with a we book. Well, we could do
1: our book, but that wouldn't be entertaining. We
4: could do our own. No, we actually can't. We don't have the audio oh, rights oh, to our book. you're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kevin, could Kevin write a porno? I mean. Oh, I could. I don't know. I'm just I'm A bad one? Toby could write a dystopian
2: porno. It's kind of like Handmaid's uh... Tale. <laughs> it is kind of like Handmaid's Tale. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> if someone holding your wrists.
2: All right. Well, I'm going to plug a podcast that's actually done by a friend of mine, a podcast friend of mine. Um, It's called True Crime Obsessed. And I will say that if you're a fan of My Favorite Murder, the comedy podcast where the two, like, female comedians talk Mm -hmm. about just, like, true crime and things about it that are funny and weird. True Crime Obsessed, it's hosted by theater podcasters Patrick Hines. He hosts theater people and Broadway backstory. And Jillian Pensavale, she hosts a show that you might like, Kevin. It's called... uh, Hamilcast, the podcast about Hamilton. <laughs> they have put together a, a little show. It's only two episodes old, but I think it has a ton of potential and I'm loving it so far. They look at a true crime classic like Making a Murderer or The Staircase and they use clips from that show. They talk about everything that's like weird and funny about it. I have like a little clip I'm going to play right now.
4: And at one point she's like, Who am I to tell this family that they're not? related and I'm like you're the FBI Nancy that's who you are like if anyone
5: has any right to tell these people that I'm so sorry to tell you this but this is a like he's a a mass imposter who's been who's wanted by Interpol and who does this
4: on the regular like you Nancy just tell them And Ariel wants to leave, by the way.
0: Oh, Ariel is losing his mind. Like, and
4: it's like the little subtitles. It's like, I want to leave. I want to leave. And he's <laughs> like, no. And it's like, again, where's this guy with the mouth full of pizza who didn't want to be on camera? How the tables have turned.
0: I know. And like, I love that everyone's like, Ariel, you need to get your shit together, girl.
2: Come
4: on. Yeah. This is your idea. You started this whole We're thing. We're going to
0: go to <laughs> <with>
2: this thing. <laughs> All right. So you can listen to True Crime Obsessed. It's very easy to find. Just go on iTunes or wherever you get your shows. Patrick Hines is awesome. His podcast partner is awesome. I don't know. I'm really loving it. I think it's going to be like a fun break from some of like the headier true crime stuff.
1: Everybody wants to get in the act.
2: Everybody wants to get in the act, but you know what? When people are funny and cool, they should get in the act. Yeah. There's room for everyone. All right. Well, I just want to just do a quick note about our audience because we had a conversation last week, a follow up conversation about 13 Reasons Why and trigger warnings, and that garnered a tremendous amount of email and social media. We're not going to relitigate it and go back into it, but I just want to say thank you to everyone who responded. As part of that, maybe further toward the end of the show, too far, I announced that we have a brand new podcast hotline Mm -hmm. where people can call and leave a message that then we could play on the show or that maybe we can call them back. And um We actually got one related to our trigger warning conversation, and I'm just hoping you can play it right now. Rebecca, let me just say I cannot say strongly, strongly enough how much
4: I hate the word infantilize. Please, please do not ever use that again. Thank you. Love you guys. Bye.
1: (laughs) I do not know how to
2: interpret that. Neither do I. I'm so confused. So I, at one point, made the case that the words trigger warning, not uh-huh. the actual concept of the words, were a little bit infantilizing. And she said, and I don't know who the listener is, she didn't leave a name, but she hates the word. So is infantilized, infantilized like-
1: Does she hate the word, like some people just like hate the word panties. Or is moist. It, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Anyone have any ideas of what that means? Is there anything wrong with the word infantilized to the, any of the three of you?
1: I mean, it is, it me. is it offensive- <laughs> Is it offensive to infants, is that why? I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, <laughs> is
4: it offensive to I, I don't even use the word enough to even feel strongly one way or another about it, really. Well,
2: Laura, I just want to let you know that you also received an email about last week's show. Oh,
1: how infantilizing.
2: It's not infantilizing. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> By the way, we just obviously just used that word like 27 times after, saying, yes, Asked not to use it.
2: Because we understand what irony means. Yes. We, <laughs> we may not understand why infantilizing <laughs> is offensive because we're too dumb for that. But, but to
1: leave the message.
2: Do you think that was ironic? That I think,
1: I th- I th- yeah, I wonder if it was un- it was unintentionally ironic. All right, yeah. all right.
2: But I love you too, listener. Whoever you are, I love you too, deeply. Me too. So last week we also talked about casting Jean Benet, that uh-huh. super weird Netflix documentary that split the panel. hmm And Laura, you received a very poignant email today that I'm going to read for you quickly.
1: It's moving? I found it's, it moving. okay.
2: I agree with everything Laura said about (laughs) casting Jean Benet. (laughs) I tried to watch the show and I just couldn't get through it. I honestly just didn't care about any of the actors in the show. And I now know why it only has three stars on Netflix. They should have instead, in a documentary on the cop-slash-BDSM guy, it
4: would have been much better.
1: <laughs> it's a spin-off. I, yeah. <laughs>
4: so, I agree with everything you say, reviewer. <laughs> <you over. laughs>
2: <laughs> so, thus ends this week's mailbag and uh, feedback segment. But, I just want to say one more time, we do have this podcast hotline that you can call And I don't remember the number, but I do remember the spelling of it. It is 7bleedbag1. So you can either email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com or call us at 7bleedbag1 and leave us a voice memo and we will perhaps play it on the podcast or respond to you on the show. Now, Kevin, I would like you to read this because it is time for one of these. True Crime Podcast Podcast update. Update. Now, as you guys know... I work on the audio side of the podcast Undisclosed, which started as a spin-off of serial mm-hmm. because Robbie Achadri, who brought Sarah Koenig, the Adnan Sayed case, and is a family friend and advocate for Adnan Sayed, wanted to do more with the legal case that they were building on the defense side for Adnan's appeals and so forth. Right,
1: right. Everybody knows what Undisclosed is yes, who listens to this show. But,
2: yeah. you know, Undisclosed has then branched out. They're doing different shows. They're doing uh-huh. a Freddie Gray arc right now. But this week they did an non Syed case update. They went and old school. They went old school. And it was, and I think that my friends at Undisclosed won't get mad at me for saying this, very complicated and legal, <laughs> <laughs> as, as that show is known for being. And that's not a... a Criticism. That's just what the show is, and I think fans of the show don't mind that.
1: They don't want to be infantilized.
2: <laughs> but they actually did a kind of a tight wrap-up of WTF is going on with all these appeals uh-huh. after that PCR hearing, like uh-huh. the appeals and the cross appeals, and they've and and they did this whole like four-pronged thing about like what's happening next with this next upcoming hearing in June. But there was one moment in the podcast when I, even when I was editing it for audio, where I was like This is an interesting question. This is an interesting answer. And I just wanted to play it for you guys just so we could talk about it. So I'm just going to play that right now.
5: Well, you know, a couple of things to note about what you just said, Colin. Number one, the state is presenting these kind of you know, evidentiary arguments against Adnan uh, based on the facts they presented at the trial. Right. So when they say unimpeached evidence, well, a lot of it has been impeached much later, like in the last couple of years, but they're looking at this case like as a time capsule. So they're not looking at the fact that Jay has changed statements again, that there's lividity evidence that other things, you know, have disproven some of this stuff. But here's what I wonder. I mean, you say that the state will have trouble threading this needle, but won't it really depend on how much these judges know about the facts of the case? I mean, when I recited that list of evidence, if you don't know exactly what happened then and how inconsistent even in 1999 and 2000 this evidence was or so-called evidence was and how much has been done since, it can seem pretty convincing. And I don't think the Court of Special Appeals is going to know the facts of the case as well as, let's say, our listeners do or, do or we do.
0: Right. And that's why I think it'll be very important that these oral arguments for the defense to make clear to look. Judge Welch found there's a huge problem with the state's timeline. Jay said he got the come and get me call after 3.45 p.m. and there's no matching call. So that couldn't have taken place. But the state, of course, claims this happened at 2.36 p.m. Well, now Eze's alibi takes it to 2.40 p.m. So that knocks out the come and get me call altogether. We have the inconsistency in the timeline based upon Jay's story versus the state's story. And now the state itself has acknowledged that both Inez Butler and Debbie saw Hay alone after school. And really, at trial, the state hung its hat in Inez Butler, and Inez says, I saw Hay run up to the concession stand between 2.15 and 2.20 p.m. She was in such a hurry to leave, she didn't even have time to pay for what she bought. So the state has Hay leaving school in a hurry by herself between 2.20 and 2.25 p.m., which is about 15 to 20 minutes before Asia leaves Adnan behind at the library. So while the state basically is throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks, I think the defense really needs to focus on these two big problems— one identified by Judge Welch, one identified by the state and argued to the court of special appeals. These problems made the state's case so weak that correct handling of Asia or the cell tower pings likely would have changed the outcome at trial.
2: Okay, there's a lot there to unpack. And we don't need to talk about like all of the fine points that legal Siri just like totally threw out as advice to the <laughs> defense God. team. Um, because... Frankly, if you're not following this like detail by detail, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to keep up. But clearly, legal Siri, who, by the way, I would argue in the indisclosed team, has the least skin in the game in terms of outcome. Yeah. When he just sort of throws out, here's what the defense should do, here's what the prosecution should do, here's whatever, like my ears perk up and I just like kind of pay attention. But what struck me about that whole conversation is this, Laura, which is the basic frustration in the appeals and the defense process about facts. And fairness. Now, here's this case that has gotten like a tremendous amount of publicity, and Judge Welsh, who was the judge in the PCR hearing, who made this ruling that overturned the verdict, arguably actually looked at some of like the new facts that have been discovered. But if you take everything that fans know and that people who are paying attention know, like Robbie has said, off the table. If you even take like undisclosed off the table, and cereal off the table. Isn't this a perpetual issue for defendants during appeals that people actually deciding their fate haven't really boned up on any of these details?
4: Well, I wouldn't say any of these details. I think that in a lot of places, the courts are very busy. And so what they are basing their decision off of is, you know, what the facts are that are presented to them at the appeal, what sort of paperwork has been filed with that appeal with background information. And so I think it's really... You know, it depends on how thorough a job you do as a defense attorney to get all the information that you think is relevant before those justices who are making that decision. And was I was listening to this, you know, it, it reminds me of kind of just in like the real world is like if you're going to a doctor or a specialist and say you have somebody, you know, like I took care of my grandmother and she had a long medical history. You know, I know every in and out bit of that medical history that other person maybe is hearing like the last three things I said. And so it's like much more complex. So I think it's just how you're presenting the information to make sure that you're getting the complete story out there. But in this case, I mean, like I can't even remember. It's it's so complex and there's so many details and so much new information that's come out in Adnan's case, it's hard. Just to keep up with all of it. So um, yeah, it's an issue.
1: To pick up on Laura's example there, if you were to take someone to the doctor and, and you know that person's full medical history, you know, that doctor may be specializing in a certain thing and really only needs to focus on certain conditions and not, you know, the heart attack that that person had before or yeah. that they had polio as a kid or something like that. I think the original question about is it unfair that these judges aren't really up to date on everything and they haven't boned up on everything, I don't think so because they're not here to relitigate the case. They're just looking at potential errors made by either the judge. They're
2: looking at Welch's ruling on the overturning at this point.
1: Yeah yeah or taking another complaint uh at prosecutorial misconduct or ineffective assistance of counsel by the defense right in a way it only tangentially has to do with telephone calls and eyewitness statements. At because this point, it has it almost plays,
2: nothing to do with that. It,
1: it only That only, I think, only really comes into it because they're trying to make a claim about the timeline the state used. So A can't equal B and C can't equal D. They're not really litigating those things, but they're showing, look- there was good this reason to throw this thing out. There's good reason to throw this out. Uh would you follow yeah.
2: Colin's advice if you were the defense team right now?
1: <laughs> I would do whatever Colin said. <laughs> Colin told me to get anchovies on the pizza, I would do it anyway. <laughs> yeah.
2: Now, Toby, Ooh. I know you aren't necessarily convinced by any of the new evidence or arguments in a non science case, and that's okay. Because in this podcast, as many tweeters and emailers have pointed out in the last few weeks, we have room to disagree, and it's okay. It's okay.
1: It's a safe space.
2: It's okay. But Toby, can you relate to the frustration that Rabia is expressing here that she knows all of these new facts, you know, whether or not you think Anand Syed is guilty or innocent? The case that the state presented, there are like, lots of facts that clearly just don't add up. Can you relate to her, the frustration that she is expressing right here?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you can understand as far as sort of an individual case you know, I think you have to take a look at it is how does the system work in that? I think the Adnan Syed case is such an outlier because of the amount of attention and resources it's gotten for a case that I think was probably seen fairly unremarkable at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super complex. There's all this new stuff. And, you know, there's been a lot of very smart professionals working long hours on this one case in a way that I, I can't imagine there's another similar case that's gotten the same kind of um, attention. So from her perspective, I can see we've done all this work and is it going to like actually bear any fruit in the actual trial? But as a system, it's not that it isn't fair, but that the attention that's been given to his case and I don't know for sure, but my impression is is so out of scale to what your typical case would be that the system really has to be built around those more typical cases rather than the outlier. So if it was my friend, I would be insanely frustrated. But looking at it from this remove, it's such an unusual situation that it's hard to say, well, there's a problem with the system if this doesn't get the kind of attention that we feel like it ought to because it's, it is so
1: unusual, if okay. that makes sense.
2: So, Kevin, do you have final thoughts about this question around a non case? I have zero. Zero? Zero. Zero thoughts?
1: Yeah, zero thoughts. Sometimes zero can be a good thing. Oh, God. I mean, sometimes zero is a bad thing. Like when I got zero ice cream the other night because all the kids went in and dug out the peanut butter spoon. I'm not sure zero
2: ice cream is grammatically correct, but I get your point.
1: How about getting zero times uh, getting the lawnmower to run because I need a new spark plug. I feel like this
2: is going into an ad. Why don't you just get there?
1: <laughs> yeah. I like the zero I get from Zebit.
2: Zebit, yes. Yeah,
1: zero interest, zero cost to join, and zero credit check from Zebit.com. This is a fantastic way to shop online. Zebit is a great e-retailer. You can buy all the latest stuff there, home goods, gift cards, technology, everything from Xboxes and iPads to tools and toys and clothes. When you buy an item at Zebit, you shop and you pay overtime with no interest. So it's kind of like having a credit card But it's zero interest at all. It's like layaway. It's very
2: much like layaway. Which, by the way, was a very financially responsible way to purchase it. Except you get this stuff first. Oh, nice. You put it on a
1: layaway and then pay and pay and pay, and then you get your skateboard. No, you get that skateboard now and then you pay it off. Because look, anytime you do any shopping, right, and you pull out that credit card, especially online stuff, you got to pay with plastic, right? And you put it on a card and that $50 item ends up costing you hundreds of dollars because of compounding interest. And here, using Zebit, you get you don't have to worry about that because you just pay the upfront amount and you pay a little bit as you go along. So for those everyday items, you can get those from Zebit. They have all sorts of neat stuff. And remember, it's all paid for over time with zero interest. So shop today with zero interest, zero fees, zero credit check on Zebit.com slash Crime. You can get up to $2,500 credit to shop on Zebit. That's Zebit, Z-E-B-I-T dot com slash crime. Zebit dot com slash crime.
2: Slash crime. Anything crime. else, Kevin?
1: Yeah. I- I'm going to say that um, I am glad that the weather is getting better, warmer here. Oh, it's warm. In New yes. It reminds me of our great vacation that we took.
2: Oh, yes.
1: And the sunburn that I got.
2: Yes. And the way <laughs> my
1: back peeled. Yes. And how itchy it was. It was itchy. And how I said, Rebecca, you must get me Kopari stat.
2: And I said, I will slather you with Kopari, Kevin. <laughs> and Laura was
4: completely this grossed out. This is like out. Rebecca and Kevin wrote a porno right, right now. Right that's now. right. Oh my Here
1: God, yes. It was hot.
4: <laughs> I rubbed it on your lids. <laughs>
2: <laughs> my lids. My if you've listened to the podcast, you would know what we're oh, talking about. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well,
1: you rub it all over my shoulders and my back. And your it Your
2: pomegranate shaped shoulders.
1: Yes. Ex- <laughs> it's great because Kopari, as you know, our most favorite moisturizer in the world, that's made without sulfates, silicones, GMOs, and parabens, 100% organic coconut oil.
2: Mm hmm. I use the sheer oil on my face. I use the butter all over my body. I smell like an Almond Joy all the time. It has changed my
4: moisturized life. I like the balm, the one that's a little bit thicker that comes in the tube that I've been using on my feet Mm -hmm. because they are. I have some very dry, yucky patches on my feet and I want to be ready now that we actually, I don't want to jinx it, seem to be entering warm weather here in New Hampshire, it's sandal season and my feet need to look a little bit better.
2: You know what's so great about the Kopari is that because it's like organic and natural and actually is coconut oil or whatever, Depending on the temperature that it is, it's like different states. It's either solid or liquid or creamy. And we were on vacation and that bomb that Laura was talking about is very, very thick in a tube. We turned off the air conditioning in our like vacation apartment and we came back and I went open the tube and it all just like it was like liquid gold coming out of the tube. Like this is a product that actually changes with the temperature. Well, no,
1: that's great because it's actually
2: great.
1: It melts at seventy eight degrees Fahrenheit. which Which is lower than your your body temperature. So instead of putting a big blab of something that was made from a dinosaur, <laughs> you know, with petroleum in it <laughs> oh, and I slathering see. it on your body, it yeah. stays there. The it's coconut organic. oil, it melts and is absorbed right away. It's amazing. And, and and that's the secret weapon inside Kapar. Hey, listen,
2: you know I actually use this product. I actually buy it with my own money. I love it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Say <laughs> aloha to the best skin and hair of your life with Kapari. Go to koparibeauty.com slash crime to get 20% off your order. That's Kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash crime for 20% off. Koparibeauty.com slash crime.
2: Crime. Crime. So now it's time to move on to the criticism and commentary portion of the podcast. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about the Hulu which, by the way, is a streaming service that Kevin and I did not have until we had to get it for this podcast. So We have 30
1: days free. We're cool.
2: Yeah, but I kind of want to keep it now. Uh, We're going to be talking about The Handmaid's Tale. This is the adaptation of Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel. It is streaming on Hulu week by week. It is a look at a post-apocalyptic America where women are living their, quote, biological destiny, a.k.a., getting raped by and having the children of rich dudes while wearing red capes, white hoods, and doing a lot of shopping. It is, if you've read the book, a very, very, very interesting adaptation of this book. It stars Elizabeth Moss, Joseph Fiennes, Alexis Bledel, a.k.a. Rory from Gilmore Girls. Really, really interesting show. I'm really looking forward to talking about it with you guys. And um, Toby, I know this is not your first time talking about the show. You also talked about it on your other podcast, right? I did. And how did that go? Was it all right?
3: Yeah, it was really good. It's a show that I mean, I think you could kind of talk about endlessly.
2: Well, one of the things that I want to just talk about, because I feel like we our job is to recommend to listeners whether or not they actually check things out or not, the first episode, Kevin, of The Handmaid's Tale is filmed and shown in a way that is intentionally disorienting. Now, you mentioned this a yeah. few times.
1: Yeah, because everything is framed up very odd and sort of off the screen. So in, instead of you know framing somebody up so you see their face, Sometimes you, know, you you moves and you only see like part of their face. Sometimes it's, it's so much that you just see the you know the, the brim of their hat and you're looking and 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 the camera is moving and it's it's meant you know like punk rock music to really like mess with you and challenge you and I think it's all part of starting us off in this world in a very disoriented way you know which is why we we get the story of how society collapsed into this new world told to us in flashback right. as opposed to. Uh, first episode is The world has Gone Mad. Right. Second episode is Walk Around in a Red Dress, hoping to conceive Stranger's Baby.
2: Which, by the way, is kind of true to the novel. Margaret Atwood is a disorienting author, and she writes it that way. And, by the way, she makes a great cameo in the first episode of this show, which I only noticed because I know what her hair looks like. Mm-hmm. She makes a very, very quick cameo where she is slapping Bitch
1: slap somebody.
2: Yes. Uh, so I, I want to talk about the way that they've done Alfred, who is the protagonist in The Handmaid's Tale. ...in this TV show. Now, Offred, she's played by Elizabeth Moss, who's maybe better known to our listeners as Peggy from Mad Men. She was also the protagonist in that crime show from New Zealand. uh Top of the Lake. Top of the Lake, She's also on the West Wing, playing the president's daughter, by the way. Anyway, she plays Alfred, who is Alfred. of course, is a mashup of It means of Fred, meaning that her commander slash master's name is Fred, and all of the handmaids have names like this. And the story is very much told through her inner monologue. Mm-hmm. And we get her inner monologue about what's happening now, and then we also get her flashbacks with her inner monologue and that is the way the narrative is laid out for us now laura i know that you and kevin have both not read the source material margaret atwood's a handmaid's tale so i'm curious to know if you think the way they're laying out this complex story of present day and then flashbacks and using offred's inner monologue as the the guidepost does it work for someone who hasn't read the book
4: It does. And it took a little while to get going. So it it definitely um, in the beginning, I was like, wait, what's going on? You know, as I'm looking at her character and really feeling horrible for the situation that she's in and like hoping I'm not going to be disappointed at the end and she's going to eventually escape or rise up. But to go back and have the flashbacks to see, you know, bit by bit how this happened, you can see the strength of her personality that she started with and that for me really made the character a lot deeper as I'm really thinking about this character and how she's able to put up with what she's going through the horrific scenes where she, you know the sex scenes are that's just so disturbing that this and, and these people are also stoic but when you go and flash back and see what she was actually like before this happened for me, that was very helpful.
2: Yeah, the inner monologue is snarky, right? Which is yes. like exactly yeah. what it should be in a way. Yes. Yes. Now, Toby, there is, in through the process of the flashbacks, Now, Toby, you have read the book, right?
3: Uh, I haven't, actually. You
2: haven't? Oh, my God. I'm the only person on this panel who's read The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Apparently so. I can't believe I'm never the most literate person on this panel ever. <laughs> I feel like playing a sound effect right did now. You,
1: did you see the movie, too, that was made in like the so, 90s? But, oh, hold I did. Hold I,
2: saw on. I saw that. Let's oh, just make room movie. for a little like celebratory sound effect. Okay. So, Toby, one of the things the flashbacks are meant to show is that shift from the normalcy of America to the Gilead or Gilead, however you pronounce it, which is now the new state of America, where you have these commanders, which are men in positions of power in different parts of the countries. You have women in various roles. They're either handmaids, the red-dressed reproductive ones. And we should mention this is post some sort of economic and biological societal collapse where infertility has become a major thing, and America is panicking because like, people aren't reproducing, and this societal collapse sort of happens in the wake of all of that. So now you have several classes of women. You have the handmaids, who are the children-bearing-slash-grocery-shopping. Um,
1: <laughs> That's one of their duties. It yeah, they, is, but they're also, yeah. they're
2: also sort of like a nunnery. They have like a hierarchy, they mm-hmm. have their own commander. You have the Marthas, who are sort of the housemaids and the servants. And then you have all the other women who have apparently been shipped off to colonies who you never see or hear about.
1: You're the wife of a rich commander. Yes. Oh, yes. That is the third class. Is the
2: stoic, icy ass, infertile wife of a rich commander. Wearing a green dress. Which is
1: weird, by the way.
2: Why do you think that's weird, Toby?
3: I, I think it's weird that, you know, for all the, I think, largely feminist view of things, that the infertile women are these, like, ice-cold, unpleasant bitches.
2: I think you can make the case they're also being repressed, though. They've been put in these roles of the wives of the commanders. They also have their roles to play. And their main responsibility is raising the children and, and, like, wanting the children that only the handmaids can
4: bring to bear. Like, it kind of sucks to be a wife, too, even though... They're kind of all bitches. So this week's episode does shed, I was happy to see, more light on the background and the backstory of the commander's wife in the home that Offred is stationed in. And when you're talking about how they, they had to become repressed to fill those roles, you learn and you see that um, in this woman. And, and that was a character I really had not much sympathy for. Serena
2: and I Joy. Definitely,
4: yeah. I, I felt a lot more sympathy for her after this week.
2: Now, Toby, you have, you know, I, I think one of the things that you talked about and that you talked to me about was sort of that dual look at feminism here. We have an all-female production that is of a feminist source work, but there has been some criticism about whether or not this actually is a feminist story. What have you heard and, and read about that?
3: Well, one thing, and I, and I didn't read much more than a headline of this, but but some of the cast was asked if it was a feminist work, and they they said no. I read an article that was sort of taking issue with it as a as a feminist work because so much of it is you're you're watching these very troubling and graphic depictions of violence against women, whether it's these ritualized rapes, Alfred, Gets basically attacked with. I, I think it's basically a taser, right? Mm-hmm. There's a woman who gets a clitorectomy. I mean, there's all these. You don't see
2: those on camera, in case that should scare you away. Right, That's right.
3: Back it's back. not. It's not. I mean, this is not a terrifically.
2: It's not graphic I mean, in the it's way. Not, that gr- it's It's. It's, it's
3: very. It's. It's not graphic, but you see the results of it. It's
2: tasteful violence.
3: Yeah. Her her point was, how can it be feminist when you're basically watching this nonstop kind of misery and violence against women? I think the response to that is anti-war movies are showing the horrors of war. Right. What you're doing is showing sort of these sort of misogynist views like, and kind of taking it to the next level. Like, what if this was sort of the organizing Uh, Structure of society was misogyny. Um, What if it was? Yeah.
0: Well.
2: Well, this is the thing, and Kevin, I'll get to you. I I have Mm -hmm. a question for you, but I just want to say something first, which is that. There is this change that is shown in these flashback scenes from normalcy, so-called normalcy of America. But, you know, we know this infertility thing has happened and we know it seems like some economic issue has. It seems like there's a lot of like stuff going on. But the infertility thing is the fear of the day. Very much like how in our current world, sometimes terrorism is like the fear of the day. There's like a fear of the day being sold by the government. And this novel was written like in the 80s way pre 911 and so i think what margaret atwood was trying to show was that infertility is the source of the panic right mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's like god is punishing us for something and this is what he is has has brought to us so we then see in these flashbacks these changes from this normal state of like we are in a government lockdown because all of congress has been killed in some sort of attack and some of our rights have been curtailed but that's okay because the government's trying to protect us And then we see the slow erosion of the rights of women. We see that women are suddenly demonized for wearing certain things. And then one day, all of a sudden, they're all ordered to be fired. Their assets are frozen and they have no rights anymore. As a woman, when I watch this, I feel like it feels like an exaggerated version of little things that I've experienced In my life as a woman, it feels like the worst-case scenario of some of the things that I've felt. But I'm wondering, as a man, does that transition from, quote, normal America being protected by government post-attack in those flashbacks, does it ring true? Does it look in any way realistic to you or convincing? Is it done well in the show?
1: Some things, and some are just, you you know, you have to just suspend disbelief in order to go along. Like what? The idea that all of a sudden there is this massive army of men in black uniforms. It was a coup. That just took over everything everywhere. It was a coup, yes. It was a coup. Okay, well, that's not terribly- Obvious. Obvious, but just logistically, it just seemed like you know, the boss got a call and said, I have to let all the women go. And it's like he's in this little office as if you know, like everybody got the same phone call at the same time. Call the bus company and call the, you know, I mean, some of this, this stuff is a little, you know, again, logistically,
2: you have to yeah, I this mean just,
1: yeah, yeah, logistically, there's a lot of planning would have to go into subjugating women on this level.
3: You know, I think the historical, you know, what they're looking back at, is like probably among other things, but you take a look at the Holocaust, where you were able to, through fairly fast increments, go from restricting certain rights and then more rights and then you know there's a scene in the in the coffee shop where the guy doesn't want to serve the two protagonists you kind of see that going on and then there's like you can't employ Jews in certain occupations and then most occupations so it seems and that like happened it happened
2: very quickly in real life
3: yeah. Yes. yeah you know it was over the course of a few years. You know, I I think what they try and do, because, again, the point of the the series is not this kind of transition from, like, something that looks like today to this dystopia. You don't think that's the point
2: of the series, Toby?
3: I think the the point of the series is after the dystopia has come, right? They, They try and show... That transition through these like carefully crafted flashbacks to give you a sense of it went from this to this to this without spending a ton of time on it. And I think I think they do it pretty effectively, but they do leave a lot of blanks that you have to fill in yourself kind of, I guess.
1: Yeah. So Toby's comments pointing out that this happened in Germany in the 30s. Makes me feel like as stupid as I ever have been.
5: <laughs> that that, yeah, that was not my intention. Yeah, no, actually,
1: you're right. This actually has happened and could happen. But also, you know, I, what I think Toby's saying is that the story is about the dystopian world, the coup and the economic downfall, and the that's all the MacGuffin. It's no. just getting just getting everything going so it could set up this world in which the handmaidens live, and it's their story, because it's The Handmaid's Tale. See, I actually- It's, not, it's I actually, not The Soldier's Tale. Listen,
2: I actually disagree. I think The Handmaid's Tale, and there are all these nuggets, and, and by the way, the book is sort of paced exactly the way, and mm-hmm. I will say, I'll tip my hand, this is one of the best adaptations of a book I have ever seen on screen. Mm-hmm. The the only real, I mean, I haven't read the book in a few years, so I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert in the book, but it feels like the book made me feel. The characters look like you could imagine them looking in the book. The places look like it. The seat, the setting, the costumes, which we'll talk about in one second, I promise, look exactly the way that you can imagine looking in the book. But the book does very little... Pre-collapse stuff. They do exactly what the show's doing. We know that Alfred was a real person with a husband and a kid. We know she had a job, and then we know suddenly all of her rights were stripped away, and she was plopped into this world. To me, the whole point of this whole thing is what happened. Look at where we are, and it's mm-hmm. all—it's all designed to make you ask the question: like, what the fuck happened? And even when when you're watching the little details of how they're shopping in the grocery store and how they're like, there are oranges today. What the fuck happened that suddenly like (laughs) oranges are not something that are that's available all the time? Like what the fuck happened that now we're like hanging people on? What happened? Laura, you seem like you might be on my page here.
4: No I'm on your page Like I'm at the point I'm like watching the show And I'm like I-, I think I need to have An exit bag in my house I need to have some cash I need some clothes Passports I'm like And a map like, I'm watching Yeah I'm like watching this Going oh my God, this is like a warning. You never know when this could happen and it could happen right now. So, you know, I got to be ready. Um, but it, it, I think that is part of it. It's, it's the mystery of not information dumping all of the background of what happened to make you sit there, like you said, and wonder what led to this and how did it get to this point without anybody stopping it or anybody trying to stop it? Or maybe they did try to stop it and why weren't they able to? So it's, it's definitely very thought provoking, but it also, in me, because I'm a little bit of a drama queen, I'm like starting to get a little panicked myself in my own house. <laughs> I, I I do feel like we're given like one tiny clue about why
2: no one stopped it. And this is just one tiny scene and it's not much of a spoiler where we see offered and her husband and her best friend, who's played by that wonderful actress from Orange is the New Black, whose name, I don't remember the top of my head, where the rights are starting to be stripped from women in a flashback mm-hmm. and the husband says, in a very awkward handed and loving comment like don't worry i'll take care of you and the two women are like wtf like that is not a cool thing to say <laughs> like like taking it, like, that's not the answer to this problem mm-hmm. is you taking care of me the, answer the problem is like i shouldn't need to be taken care of and then of course we see the protest and everything happens mm-hmm. after that but i want to like just can we just step back for a second and talk about sure. the aesthetics of the show sure because they are striking and they're true to the novel. But as three people who haven't read the novel, Toby, what do you think of the symbolism of the handmaid's outfits, red with white bonnets, uh, the master's wives' outfits, all green? How does the costuming and just the look of the show strike you? Does, does it feel real or does it just feel weird considering that you don't know the source material?
3: So, w- one of the things I think is really. Good as far as sort of like visual artistic choice is that they have this weird juxtaposition of these people in these sort of color coded, sort of symbolic outfits, but they, they put them in situations that aren't that unusual from what you'd run across today. The so they show this food store, which is a little weird because they have certain things that don't have other things, but it basically looks like a nice clean food store with food and aisles and every, but everybody who's shopping are either wearing identical red outfits or identical dark earth tones the way they put this completely strange way of dressing but in these like fairly normal scenes is is very jarring and i think very effective
4: I think the one thing that really jumped out to me was the costumes of the handmaids themselves. Um, As I was looking at them, the the two-piece head bonnets that they wear, it started to look to me like lampshades on their heads. (laughs) And like those the big ones that they put on when they go out. And I was like, you know, thinking about, you know, these women, they're like a piece of furniture. They're like a lamp in the corner. Mm -hmm. And only once in a while did they get to take off the big lampshade and actually scene and then the commanders in their dark outfits and you know that they don't even these people never seem to take their clothes off even when they have sex Yeah, it's, it's bizarre uh, um, hands on the hips they're looking the other
2: direction it's very very yeah. strange well they're yeah. not supposed
3: to like it right
2: it, well, technically I mean, they're, they're not kind supposed to, do, to like it they're kind
1: of doing their duty
2: exactly their mm-hmm. reproductive duty now Kevin um, Gilmore Girls
1: yeah I didn't watch it
2: you've seen a little bit of it Yeah, Rory Gilmore aka Alexis Bledel plays maybe the edgiest character in this show. She plays a lesbian re- who is reproductive and ergo turned handmaid and who commits acts of Handmaid's Tale, Treason, and Gilead, which by the way are just like the most like was feminist- Gender
1: betrayal, what
2: was it? Gender betrayal, I have this yeah. whole thing, but she's the one who also acts out and gets into uh-huh. trouble. So she is a stark character. She does not look anything like Rory Gilmore in this show- I think she's maybe the secret weapon of this show. What do you think about her character and the fact that they got this Gilmore girl to play that character?
1: Well, overall, I do like the cast. I think she's good, and I'd like to see more of her. I think that you said that... In the book, that character, we don't see as much of her no, in the in, book as we are yeah. in, in the, the TV series In the right book, now? basically,
2: yeah. like she does a bad thing and is taken away. And the the main character, Offred, who's, who the whole book is told through her lens, mm-hmm. she's told that she committed suicide and she's just gone. But she doesn't really know. She right. just disappears. Right. This is where it differs from the book, is that of Glenn, who now has a new name because she's no longer with Glenn, her story is now continuing in the series, yeah.
1: It was a great pick. She's she's doing a great job at it. And I kind of, when she's not on the screen, I miss seeing her. I want want to see more of her antics, her rebellion. And I hope I see that in future episodes. But they have, you know, for uh, all of the oppression and subjugation of the handmaids, the handmaids have such value that they should have more discreet power. I mean, they do have the power of... You committed a capital crime, but you're fertile, so uh, we're going to send you back. They didn't but, just send her back. Yeah, well, yes. yeah.
4: I was going to say, that, that one scene, I have to say, the one scene where she is punished for what she's done, and you, you sort of read between the lines as to what happened to her. Uh, to me, that was one of the scenes in this whole series so far that actually made me cringe. Right? I don't know about anybody else, oh, but it was, it was yeah. pretty, I was just like, oh,
1: I don't even Ah. have one of those, and I was cringing.
4: But for somebody like Rory Gilmore to be playing a character who had something (laughs) like that happen to her, I was like, whoa, wait. So I'm guessing you watched at least a little bit of Gilmore Girls, Laura, right? I was something of a Gilmore Girls addict, yes. 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 Were you surprised to see her show up in the show looking the way that she looks? Yes, I was. And that's why I said, you know, and then to see her being sort of the rebel leader and then also that sort of fallout when she's caught didn't jive with that little Rory Gilmore that we all know. So I just
2: have another one casting question to ask all of you. Um, Toby, Elizabeth Moss, who plays Alfred in The Handmaid's Tale, in real life, she's a Scientologist. How do you feel about that?
1: (gasps) Oh, oh, Laura feels. I think, what?
2: I, I think I asked the wrong person, but I really wanted to go to Toby for this because if, Imagine being this actress playing this character, and all of the other totally feminist, rebellious characters that Elizabeth Moss is known for playing. In real life, she's a verified Scientologist. What do you think, Toby?
3: That's a good question. As much as like Scientology in itself, I find kind of troubling. Like, the fact that a certain person is a Scientologist, I guess... I mean, she's such a good actress, is <laughs> <laughs> what it basically comes down you to. You forgive her. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't... You know, it, it seems like it would be weird to be like, well, Elizabeth Moss is interested in doing this, but she's a Scientologist, so it seems a little weird, so we won't let her. I mean, Scientology's weird, so anytime you're like, well, that guy's a Scientologist, or this person's a Scientologist, it's like, hmm, that does strike me as odd, but... She's so good. I, I mean, know,
2: I, it, I know. You know,
3: there, there's nobody you'd rather... Well, I say you. There's nobody I would rather have playing this...
2: She's so good in it. ...this role, And it, 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 it's not that I think they wouldn't want her. It's that I think, like, as a Scientologist, you would imagine that there would be just, like, from what we have heard, I mean, allegedly, about Scientology, you would imagine you'd feel, like, a little bit of irony playing the role of somebody who's subjugated in a system... From which
1: they can't escape. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay.
4: Is she having like an inner conflict in her own mind, playing a role like this? (laughs) And do her Scientology teachers mind that she's playing this role? Laura, were you thinking that too? That's that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking. How is she allowed to play a role like this? How is she allowed to play a role with all this? Uh, Yeah, it's definitely kind of. It's ironic, to put it mildly.
2: All right, well, I think it's time we've tried to deliver a little bit of an analysis and a little bit of a review. And just to give our sort of wrap up, uh, do you think that our listeners should watch The Handmaid's Tale? And if they're not Hulu subscribers like we weren't beforehand, should they perhaps sign up for the 30-day free trial and or subscribe to watch The Handmaid's Tale? Do you give it a thumbs up, thumbs down, or what? Uh, Toby, I'm going to start with you.
3: I, I think it's really good. Like, I can't remember watching something like this that I thought was as good as this is. Like I try and think about things that I think don't work in it. And I just, it's hard. You know, I, I think everything, all the choices they make, I think are strong. The actors are strong. I think it's really top notch, I think.
2: What about you, Laura? Thumbs up or thumbs down to The Handmaid's Tale? And should our listeners subscribe to Hulu just to watch it if they're not already subscribers?
4: I would say thumbs up. This is uh, something that I, you know, sometimes like last week, John I, JonBenet, I was like, oh, I couldn't get through with this show. I watched like four episodes in a row when I started because I started later than some of the other folks and I could not stop watching it. It's very compelling, um, even though it is disturbing. And I fear I'm going to be disappointed in the end if these women don't rise up and, and succeed in getting some of their freedoms back. But at the same time, it's so good. I can't stop watching.
2: Yeah, I'm loving it too. Big thumbs up for me. Yes, it is worth subscribing to Hulu just to watch this one show. And then if you're like me, your kids will find out you have a subscription and they will discover other shows on Hulu that they like. And next thing you know, you're married to Hulu forever. That's what's happening in my house. But I am loving this adaptation of this Margaret Atwood novel that I have loved for a long time. And I have the same feeling watching this that I had when watching my all time favorite dystopian TV show, Battlestar Galactica, the reboot, that even though I kind of know where it's probably going, I still really want to watch it happen because the acting is fantastic, the production is fantastic, I'm loving everything about it. Kevin, what about you?
1: Yeah, I'm going to agree that if you don't already have a Hulu subscription, it's it's worth it to get the free trial or pay for uh, a month or two uh, to, to find out how it turns out. How many episodes, by the way, do we know? No
2: idea.
4: It's
1: probably like a 10 I or 13. I didn't that. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's 10.
1: It's worth it. I'm definitely going to stick around to the end. I haven't read the book, so I would like to find out what happens. I'm interested in the fate of all the handmaids. And I'm also very curious about these infinite number of young men with machine guns and black outfits that just... Appear to be everywhere.
2: You know why they're everywhere and there's a number of them? Why? Because they're no longer in Afghanistan or Iraq and everywhere else we are because America has become a country that is like isolated from the rest of the world. Have you not been paying attention? <laughs> I'm just saying it just seems like there's
1: there's no Starbucks to go work at. Right. You know, it's like, so basically your choices are if you're a, a woman, you can be shipped off to the colonies. You can somehow be, I don't know, chosen to be a Martha, or you can uh, just wait and be subjugated to be a handmaid. If you're a man, you can be a limo driver, or you can be a goon.
2: You can also be the guy running the construction equipment, tearing down all the churches. Oh, there's that, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I will say that I do think- you do the
2: cashier at the grocery store job. Yeah, you could do that. there's plenty of jobs.
1: There's plenty of jobs. And so even in dystopia, you You still have- You mean by
2: hanging the people. You still have-
1: Even in a dystopian world, you still have to look your best, which is why there's Harry. <laughs> I knew if you, you'd you let me get around to it eventually. So uh, when you want to
2: have your clandestine sex with the chauffeur over the garage? You want to make sure you have a good shave first? Is that where we're well, yes, go? Well, yes. The
1: chauffeur <laughs> would definitely be hoarding, you know, at world's end, the last blades that Harry's ever made. But fortunately, we don't live in that world, and I can just... Go to harrys.com and get myself more blades. I love it because it gives me a super close shave. It's very smooth. When you take that first stroke, especially, it's like cutting through butter. Toby, uh, you're also a big Harry's fan. I'm
3: a huge Harry's fan. I've given it as gifts to, like, everybody in my entire family.
1: Even people you don't like, right? Uh, Absolutely. And it brought you closer together.
3: I've never heard a discouraging word about
1: Harry's. (laughs) Certainly not on this podcast. I mean, Harry's is so confident that you love their blades, they're going to give you a free trial set. All you have to do is cover the $3 in shipping, and what you get includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineer blades with a lubricating strip, and a trimmer blade in that cartridge, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. That's a $13 value for you to try. It's certainly a whole lot easier waiting for those blades to come to your door in the mail than standing in the aisle at the drugstore looking through that, that plexiglass case. Yes. Can you imagine in Handmaid's Tale like what you would have to do to get razors in that, that oh, store? Oh, Jesus.
2: In the book, they're not allowed to shave, FYI. But in a series, Elizabeth Moss's legs look great. I bet she's using a Harry's. So
1: stop messing around and get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free trial offer. It's a $13 value for free. Just cover the shipping. To get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com slash crime. Right now, that's harrys.com slash
5: crime.
2: Crime. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call... The crime of the week. Crime of the week. <laughs> oh, you're going to do that now. You're going to be that guy. In a misstep that would seem to run counter to her business model. In a misstep that would seem to run counter to her model, <laughs> A woman who offers a semi-nude... Okay, stop. Okay. A woman who offers a semi-nude cleaning service was arrested for stealing underwear. <laughs> police in Banger, Maine, say the woman Banger. is the, Yes. That
3: happened in Banger? Oh, yes. Oh, my God.
2: <laughs> police in Banger, Maine, say the woman who is the owner-operator of a business called Topless Cleaning, was caught shoplifting undergarments from a local business. Banger Police Sergeant Tim Cotton left a lengthy post about the arrest on the police department's Facebook page, which- as I think we've mentioned on this show before, is the freaking greatest police department Facebook page <laughs> in the entire country of America, and you should absolutely look it up, the Banger Police Department Facebook page, and you should look at it every day, because it's the best example of community policing in America.
1: By the way, for, for those international listeners, it's spelled like Bangor.
2: B-A-N-G-O-R. Yeah. Yeah. If you follow our page regularly, Sergeant Tim Cotton writes, you will note that I am a staunch supporter of small business and enterprising individuals trying to find their way into their own American dream. When I read this case file and discovered the owner of this fledgling enterprise was arrested by Officer Dick Polk, yup, that's really his name, for Are you shoplifting. Kidding me? This is in the Facebook post. This is how great this Facebook page is, Kevin. <laughs>
1: Officer Dick
2: Polk. <laughs> was arrested by Officer Dick Polk. Yep, that's really his name for shoplifting several naughty underthings from a local purveyor of same. I was disappointed. I jumped to the conclusion that the business plan did not really match the printed advertising materials. No, I don't know who their graphic designer firm is. Now, what he's talking about there are the signs for the topless cleaning firm, mm-hmm. which is literally someone wrote in a like, sharpie on a piece of like printer paper Topless cleaning and a phone number, and that was like the sign that they wrote.
5: <laughs>
2: Polk photographed the well-crafted advertising flyer and duly noted that several of the easy tear-off tabs had been removed by individuals who had dirty dwellings and possibly dirty minds. I have no idea if there are any other FTEs involved in the company plan, but if you did have your heart set on a full quote top-to-bottom cleaning of your crib, you might want to grab them up because this woman won't be showing up with buckets and sponges anytime soon. She was arrested on shoplifting charges as well as conditions of release. Both were classy crimes. How serendipitous. In this case, and in many others, we advise everyone to keep their hands to themselves, leave other people's things alone, be kind to one another. The women and men of the Banger Police Department will be here, and we already have our own janitor. So here's my question, and it has nothing to do with whether or not the Banger Police Facebook page is the best police Facebook page in America. My question for you is this Toby Ball, would you hire a topless or bottomless maid, or do you think it's likely that a topless or bottomless maid wouldn't actually be that great at housekeeping? What do you think, Toby?
3: Yeah, I prefer to have my Marthas all, like, garbed up <laughs> oh. in <their> my <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, God. What about you, Laura Brooker? Would you hire a topless or bottomless maid? Or is it likely that they wouldn't be so great at housekeeping?
4: I mean, I would just like to be able to hire a maid. But I, I have to say, there's something going on in Maine. And this is, I just, because I remembered this. A few years back, there was a big brouhaha about a coffee shop with topless waitresses. Does yeah. anyone remember this? Oh, yeah. yeah. The topless so, donut shop, you know, yep the topless donut shop, and and think of their slogan in Maine, Maine, the way life should be. So I'll just leave you with that.
2: <laughs> you know what the other controversy in Maine was? Was the uh, Zumba, Zumba studio slash hooker oh. shop. Yes. Yeah. And that raises the question, is your Zumba teacher actually teaching Zumba? So no, I would not hire a topless or bottomless maid. I do not know who would, but like Laura, just being able to hire a maid would also be a luxury. What about you, Kevin?
1: What's the question?
2: Would you hire a topless <laughs> or bottomless maid?
1: Oh, I would hire a topless bottomless maid. <laughs> yeah.
2: Tell us why. And
1: I, and I would let the house get really dusty.
2: <laughs> we should probably leave it with you right there.
1: I'm just you asked the question.
2: Laura Bricker, uh, speaking of Kevin's weird predilection towards topless and bottomless maids, is there a <laughs> cat of the week this
4: week? <laughs> Wow, that was a transition. Um the, we have a dog of the week this week <gasps> because Yay! yes in in honor of my skitty kitty zelda who occasionally makes an appearance on social media as she did today wendy one of our regular followers sent a picture of her new, her new dog also named zelda a tiny little dog that only weighs three pounds 3.4 pounds it's very very cute that's a really small dog laura bricker if people want to reach you on social media perhaps on twitter
2: and pitch you their animals as cat of the week how can they reach you there Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, I hear your new podcast is available on a new platform. Uh, Right now people can get it on. Do you want to just like plug that?
3: Radio Free Dystopia is now available on Stitcher. Which I think gets us to all the like big platforms or whatever. It does. So anyway, the Twitter feed for that is at RF Dystopia and my Twitter feed is
1: at N H.
2: And Kevin and Flynn, if listeners want to tweet to you and offer up their services for topless or bottomless <laughs> housekeeping, how can they do that?
1: I'm taking resumes now at Kevin P. Flynn.
2: And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at RebLavoy. Our show is also on Twitter at CrimeWritersOn, and we love, love our fans on Twitter. So follow us, and we will tweet you back. We also love our fans on Facebook. Just search for CrimeWritersOn podcast On right there on Facebook. You can also go to our website, crimewriterson.com, sign up for our newsletter, buy stuff using our Amazon link. And if you love the show, do us a solid. Leave us a review on iTunes. Our handsome line producer, he's Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Square Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. a closet in our basement that still smells, if I'm being totally honest, a little bit like mothballs. (laughs) On behalf of all the crime writers, we will catch you later. I want to tell you something, Toby. You know how you turned Lara on to My Dad Wrote a Porto? I just want to yes. let you know, the Moscow Mule is the gin and tonic of 2017.
3: I'm drinking one right now. <laughs> it's so awesome.
4: High. It's the
2: best. There's, there's one problem, I, though, with the Moscow Mule. Let's goes just be down real. down too easy. You can put too much vodka in it, and it goes down incredibly easy. You know, oh, yeah. And it has the pretty See. mug. Yeah. I am a huge fan of Kopari Beauty. Thank you so much for sponsoring this podcast, Kopari. Their line of beauty products packs in everything you would want in a moisturizer without any of the bad stuff. It's out with sulfates, silicones, GMOs, and parabens, and in with 100% organic coconut oil. If you want to try the best skin and hair products you will use in your life... Go to coparibeauty.com slash crime to get 20% off your entire order. That's copari, K O P A R I, beauty.com slash crime for 20% off. coparibeauty.com slash crime.